and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty, along with my brother Brian. We're going to be talking about bacterial diseases in corn today. I've uh, been out in a lot of fields here over the last few weeks looking at bacterial diseases, and we've got a few things we want to share with you on that. We're also taking your calls and questions on today's program, 844-44-AG-PHD. You can find us on Twitter, Media. Brian Hefty or Darren Hefty, or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. All right, when it comes to these bacterial diseases, and uh, we are going to get to the AgPHD mailbag right away in the show, but before we do, just a couple quick words on bacterial diseases, and we'll talk more about this as we go throughout the show today. There aren't a lot of solutions, but especially coming off a year like this year, Let's look at all the bad factors that have led to more bacterial diseases. One, a lot of people didn't get their fall fertilizer done. And then, of course, unfortunately, didn't get the spring fertilizer done. Uh, On top of that, planted into wetter conditions, saw more compaction this year, poor drainage. So when you have poor drainage, you have poor fertility, you have poor root growth, what does that lead to? That leads to a less healthy plant. And a less healthy plant is going to just flat out have more chance for disease. That's the way it goes. And then if you have wind events, um, you have even a little bit of hail, anything that dings up that plant a little bit, it opens up the plant for these bacterial diseases to get in. And since the plant is already stressed, it isn't able to tolerate those diseases. Certainly, variety makes a difference. So you can pick varieties that are better on some of the bacterial diseases like Goss's wilt or bacterial leaf streak, and there are others. So look at varieties, absolutely. But the biggest thing we're going to suggest to you is really do a good job of soil testing, really do a good job of analyzing your drainage and try to fix those two things. And for the most part, you're probably going to be in a lot better shape. All right, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag, the mighty mailbag. Ask the questions with glee. It's the mailbag, the mighty mailbag with Brian and Darren Hefty. All right, Brian had a lot of, a lot of interest recently about our carbon footprint. Uh, I got a question here. This one's from John, and he said, I've been getting a lot of feedback from people saying my fertilizers are made from fuel and that it's polluting the earth. I was under the impression phosphorus came from phosphorus mines, like down in Florida. Yep. Potassium came from potassium mines in Canada, and nitrogen was pulled from the air, and that natural gas was used to fuel the process in order to cheapen it for the needed energy to extract nitrogen from the air. Can you help me uh, to explain how fertilizers like NPK, sulfur, boron, et cetera, are made? How much actual fuel is added to them, if any? I thought our fertilizers were mined, didn't require fossil fuels other than to fuel the reaction. I'm getting a lot of flack. I'm not destroying the land. Want to know how to respond. Yep, you're on the right path. Uh, I, I mean... You think about potash, yeah, it is mined in a lot of places like up in Canada, for example, phosphorus mined in Florida. So these people that want to think that for that somehow we're putting fuel out onto our fields is preposterous. Well, I'm sure none of those people are actually burning any fuel. <laughs> I'm sure they're all riding their bicycles. Well, yeah, but it we, we talk about this almost every day here on the show. The mainstream media is just making farmers look bad and it's ridiculous i just don't understand it so uh, anyway yeah we're not using fuel 
for fertilizer and not putting that out on fields. A couple of days ago, at the end of the show, I had an an email uh, about somebody was criticizing farmers. They're destroying the planet and, you know, doing these extra things uh, out in fields that do increase yield. But, boy, it's increasing our carbon footprint. And I just said, are you nuts? Do you even know what the carbon footprint is? So here's the way the cycle works. Okay, What plants do is they breathe in carbon dioxide and they kick out oxygen. That's a good thing. So the more plant material we produce, and basically, let's put it this way, the better the yield, the more efficient our plants are at bringing in carbon dioxide and putting out oxygen, the more carbon dioxide they're going to bring in and the more carb or the more oxygen they're going to kick out. So by increasing yields, we're reducing the carbon footprint, not increasing it. And it, it just, it's just mind-boggling to me every day how people think the general, many of people in the general public think farmers are doing a bad job. Farmers are doing an amazing job and making the planet better every day, not making the planet worse. All right, let's uh, head to the phone lines here. We got Dill up in Toronto, Canada. How's it going today, Dill? Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Good. So, um, I was actually just driving along and I put it on the radio station because uh, I'm developing our, our own sort of marketing plan for our technology. And uh, one of the things I thought about was hey, what radio stations uh, do folks listen to for agriculture? And so I driving along here, put it on your radio station, and you guys are talking about bacteria. And um, <laughs> as I got put on hold, you started talking about CO2 and, and the effects on, on yield, etc. So um, it, it's a little bit of a salesy call, but the company that I work with has a new technology uh, where we're actually putting CO2 into water in an aqueous CO2 solution. And we're misting it onto plants, and we found that because of the pH change that happens on the on the plant surface, uh, we're able to stop or at least lessen the growth of bacteria by 99%. And obviously, CO2 is part of photosynthesis, and so you're getting the better yield, et cetera, et cetera, as well. And, uh, you know, we're getting things like better carbon updates, uh, better chlorophyll A, better yields and all that kind of stuff. So I just wanted to bring the technology to your attention, and I uh, just all kind of happened so quickly. Uh, as soon as I put it on the radio, you guys came up. So good you know, timing. It's, it's interesting, Dill, just how many new things there are in agriculture. And a lot of them are working with uh, just natural things that are out there. You talk about using carbon dioxide, which is, that's really cool that you're, you're able to do that. And also stopping bacterial disease. You know, at this point, farmers are used to spraying fungicide to control fungal diseases. But in terms of stopping these bacterial diseases, we're looking at all options because we don't have anything great that we can use with uh, repeatable success out in the field. Hey, thanks for the call, Dale. We really appreciate that. Stay tuned. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Clean fields and higher yields start with a strong battle plan. For soybean growers, there's no stronger ally than Sonic Herbicide. When applied pre-emerge, Sonic has proven to defeat yield robbers like water hemp, mare's tail, and giant ragweed. With long-lasting residual control, it keeps fighting to defend your field from invaders. Visit BattleWeeds.com to plan your attack against weeds. Always read and follow label directions. Sir, yes, sir! We plant corn in Iowa, spray soybeans in Illinois, 
We pull calves in Kansas, farrow hogs in Minnesota. We raise rice in Arkansas, rye in Canada, and wheat everywhere in between. We farm millions of acres across North America and build every piece of Case IH equipment. Built by farmers, for farmers. Case IH, rethink productivity. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic herbicides from Atticus LLC. Tough broadleaf weeds are a hassle, but they're no match for Cavallo from Atticus. Cavallo delivers fast, contact, and residual control so your corn, soybean, and sorghum crops can thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. Build with the best. When you choose Morton Buildings for your next farm storage building, you'll experience the Morton Advantage at every step, starting before the walls even go up. Since the value of our buildings is in its ability to protect what you have stored inside, we ensure that every component is researched and tested to withstand the elements in all weather conditions. And we back it up with the strongest warranty in the business. Looks better. Built stronger. Lasts longer. Learn more at MortonBuildings.com. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren. We are live in the Morton studio today. If you've got any questions for us, just call in at 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You can email us radio at agphd.com or find us on Twitter, agphdmedia, Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. We'll get back to talking about our topic today, bacterial diseases in corn. But first, Got our friend Scott Harms on with us. He is with Grain PhD and Archer Financial Services. Scott, how are you doing today? Very good, Brian. All right, so we're talking about grain markets a little bit, and I, 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 I haven't seen a whole lot happening lately, even though I go out to a lot of fields and, and every report I'm hearing is yields aren't that great. So tell us just a little bit about what is happening right now. Yeah, there's not uh, much going on this week. We started the week uh, with a big move uh, over the weekend. There was um, uh, some alleged drone, well, drone strikes allegedly by Iran on um, some uh, oil facilities in uh, Saudi Arabia, and that sent the crude oil market sharply higher. So we had a nice trade on Monday. Uh, those concerns uh, apparently waned on Tuesday as we gave up that ground, and and here we sit for two days with really nothing going on. We're we're in that same old phase where um, you know, we've got one report, one USDA report out of the way. We've traded it for a week, and now uh, we look forward to the next event. And you know, barring a cold weather forecast or some kind of positive trade announcement that has some real teeth, uh, we're sitting and waiting until the October estimate. And we can, you know, we've heard all the the, the talk and the chatter of. Uh, that uh, you know yields just aren't there, and I believe that with the, you know the poor farmers that I work with, that that ultimately is going to be the case. But this market is clearly trading what's in front of it at the or what is what is current the current situation, and not necessarily interested on what potentially may be. And um, so we here we sit and uh, we wait for the next announcement and more information on the the crop size in order to try to generate better selling opportunities. All right. So there was another ethanol plant, I guess, that shut down here recently in Iowa, northwest Iowa. So 
these ethanol plants closing down, has that had much of an impact on the corn price or the market overall? Yeah, I think it's a it's another wet blanket on the market. It doesn't help, but uh, as far as its actual impact, it really doesn't have um, much. It's uh, it does hurt domestic uh, usage a little bit. I mean, the uh, we crossed over the threshold of using five billion bushels of corn several years ago, um, and we worked up to about five and a half billion bushels. We can't go much higher than that because we're up against the blend wall, and so we're producing as much as we can. Uh, but I don't see a, a, a big pullback either, you know, despite what we're hearing. I mean, there have been several plants that have been shut down this year. We speak, you know, we talk about ethanol margins, you know, as a driver to ethanol production. And, and uh, ethanol margins are, are so varied depending on how old the plant is, how much of their costs are covered. So um, it's there are certainly some uh, operations that are going to be largely in the red, and they've got to make some tough decisions. Uh, but there's some plants that are probably still operating at a break-even or higher, just trying to wait out um, the situation. I've seen some articles saying that the small refinery waivers by the Trump administration have been causing some of these shutdowns. And, uh, you know, certainly that you know that could be the case. I'm, I'm not an expert in that area, or it could be just an excuse. Um, you know, we it, they are a factor. We, we you know, if if we're able to blend, if the small refiners are able to blend less, then we're we're using less domestically uh, as far as ethanol. So there, it is a factor. Um, but the biggest problem is we're not finding a home for the ethanol from an export standpoint, and it's just killing the margins. So improving the ethanol market, you know, export market down the road is, is going to go a long way towards solving that problem. That's going to be the biggest kick in the pants. Um, you know, for the first six months of this year, uh, the export in the ethanol, we've you know, we've exported 4 million barrels less than we did a year ago. So uh, ethanol exports are down. You know, tariffs are a big part of that, but also the U.S. dollar being as strong as it is and, you know, the global economy taking a hit are also factors. So there are things that are out of our control that are affecting that ethanol market as well. But, we, you know, the bottom line is we just have to chew through that supply. But, you know, some of these shutdowns we think needs to be mentioned you know, these shutdowns happen every year to a degree. I'll admit that there are more this year, and the impact is is pretty big in those in those areas. But there's a lot of times they shut down this time of year for maintenance or for upgrades, quote unquote, um, in order to wait for new crop supplies to become available. So it's not something that the market is uh, necessarily feels that it needs to react to negatively to. It's not a positive. But um, it's not a real negative. The key is going to be how quickly can we get those plants that are idle to come back online. And, uh, you know, it's probably more of an effect on the local cash market at this time of year when you come to harvest time. If that access isn't available, then it would have, you know, as on the overall balance sheet, it's probably not going to be a major factor unless it lingers for a long period of time. One of the things you mentioned was the export market and just the strength of the U.S. dollar and everything. How does the Federal Reserve Bank in the United States lowering interest rates by a quarter percent yesterday, how does that affect everything and and could we expect any improvement because of that? Well, we have markets that are available and, you know, the dollar is the major factor uh, or is, is a big factor factor and a big barrier for us um you know i talked about you know china as being a, a possible uh, export location for if we could get solved the tariff issue but mexico is also a um 
you know, place that we can ship a lot of um, ship ethanol to and would help our export market. We did see a boost in corn exports to Mexico over the last week or so, but we, they also could be a driver. Um, so that, you know, the interest rate cut, um, possibly relieving the dollar, um, you know, perhaps getting some weakness in the dollar would be uh, something that we could look forward to. But, uh, uh, you know, it's I, I don't have uh, a strong opinion on that. But, um, again, the key is trying to get uh, home for this ethanol. Okay, how about just strategies in general that a farmer could be thinking about, maybe should be using when we've got price levels where they're at today? Yeah, where we're at today, um, we would be very conservative with uh, making sales. Um, if you have you know, cash flow needs, you need to make some sales in the cash market. Those are decisions on an individual basis. Um, you know, we would maybe look to reown that uh, at some point down the road, not necessarily anytime soon, uh, unless you just feel that a major uh, cut in production is coming. Um, we would prefer to be patient and hold off on sales. Um, you know, we've targeted 390 basis, or excuse me, four dollars basis March corn, 390 basis Dish corn, as our next next level of action. And what we'd like to do is we you look at it as a pricing window. So we're you know, we would basis March coin. We might look at um, four dollars to four fifty as our pricing window, and and if we got to four dollars, we would be a conservative. We'd place a conservative hedge at that point, probably some kind of set of price floor uh, where you're buying just a put option. I prefer to buy puts and sell calls. You can reduce the cost if you buy a three thirty put and buy a, and sell a four thirty call. If we get to the $4 price range, you would do that at even money. You're giving yourself a 380 price floor. It's not a great price floor. It's not a great sale level, but it provides comfort and it buys time. The key to marketing is to reduce some of that emotion. It's not necessarily you're trying to sell it at 380 at your price floor. What you're trying to do is buy yourself some time. Um, in case something bad happens, you've got it protected. But if something good happens down the road, you can take advantage of that as well. You haven't necessarily locked yourself into 380. Uh, it's just setting down there's a price floor. As we get to the upper end of that range, you know, if if, if indeed uh, $4 to 450 is our number, as we get closer and closer to the top, then we start making, you know, cash decisions if your basis is good or futures decisions, um, you know, selling in the futures market or getting more aggressive with an option strategy at those price levels because we feel like the upside is is less at that time. I mean, all these numbers, they seem like they're far away at this time um, because here we are, what, 380? It's not that far from the bottom end of that range, but the top end of that range, it seems like it's a long ways away, but we're counting on, you know, in this methodology, we're counting on uh, that there's going to be an a, a yield cut moving forward. And if that doesn't happen, we'll have to reevaluate. But for right now, we feel comfortable with that plan uh, to take advantage of a bigger move. Yeah, I was just talking to a farmer this morning that had bugs in his grain. And I'm like, why are you holding on to the grain? we got a positive basis. Get rid of the cash grain. Buy back on the board. We've been talking to Scott Harms with uh, Grain PhD and Archer Financial Services. Thanks a lot, Scott. Appreciate it. All right, take we'll be right back. Have a great day. You too. What if surviving a drought began with a microbe? What if instead of 10 buyers, you could access 10,000? What if you were paid for the carbon your crops pulled from the air? And what if these what-ifs weren't what-ifs at all? At Indigo, we're working with farmers to question the entire agriculture system, to reimagine everything from soil to sale. Yep, the whole lot. Visit indigoag.com questions to find out more. 
Indigo, from questions we grow. Your independent spirit is more rewarding than ever before. Unlike incentive programs that require growers to purchase a particular seed brand or to bundle certain products, the FMC Freedom Pass program rewards you for making the best choices for your fields. You decide what's best for your operation, from pre-plant to harvest. Your retailer and FMC take care of the rest. It's really that simple. The exclusive agronomic rewards, performance assurances, application innovations, and product financing of the FMC Freedom Pass program make it easier to protect your crops and cash flow. That's what we mean when we say we give you more freedom in the field. You'll experience more control and confidence, too. Generics and imitators can't promise that. Visit your authorized FMC retailer or fmcfreedompass.com to calculate your potential financial incentive and learn more. Hey, Bill, any advice to control tough weeds and rootworms? That's easy, Jim. Buy two, save three. Wait, for weeds and rootworms? Buy two, save three. Combine your Impact or new Impact Z herbicide purchase with a qualifying insecticide and save $3 per acre. Buy two, save three. That is good advice. For details, go to buy2save3.com. Impact, Impact Z, and buy two, save three are trademarks owned by Amvac Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact Z is a restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. Bean growers continue to see yield loss from white mold across the Midwest this season. To maximize next year's crop, a white mold prevention strategy that includes Contans WG Soil Fungicide is a must for your farming operation. Applying Contans this fall to reduce the sclerotia in the soil is the most effective way to stop white mold at its source. Start a Contans white mold control strategy this fall or pay for it later in lost yield. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We're talking about bacterial diseases in corn, already getting some questions and calls in at 844-44-AG-PHD and our email address, radio at agphd.com. You know, just yesterday I mentioned Allison Robertson from Iowa State on the show just saying, Allison says we can't just drive by a field at 55 and say, oh, yeah, that's for sure this disease or that disease. We should really stop, figure out what's going on, and probably send a sample in. Is that pretty accurate, Allison? Yes, I'm so glad to hear that somebody actually listened. <laughs> well, there's a lot of stuff out there, and I, I just got a call yesterday, on actually on the radio show, from a farmer that said, hey, I was just all over uh, Illinois and Wisconsin and the eastern side of Iowa, and it looked like everybody has anthracnose, top dieback. And I said, hold your horses here. Uh, what are we seeing out there, Allison? I, I would imagine we're seeing a number of different things. Yes, so there's a lot of there's a lot of things coming on. So I, a lot of times we I hear people saying, "Oh, anthracnose top dieback is going on," and they just see fields of it dying from it. But 
Um, I like to remind people that some of the hybrids that we grow nowadays do mature from the top downwards. And so one thing you need to remember about diseases is they um, often occur um, as individual plants or as plants in a small group. And so when you see a whole field that looks like it's diseased, that's really unusual. You would expect to see, you know, small patches and then progression. Even if you think of a, a field of soybeans with sudden death syndrome, right, the whole field can have sudden death syndrome, but some parts of the field will be um, more advanced than others. So, um, so that's probably just a hybrid characteristic. The other thing that and we like I've seen here in Iowa is a lot of northern corn leaf blight coming in at the top of the canopy. Um, some grosses wilt, depending on you know where you are in the state and the hybrid that you're growing. And then also I've been um, seeing bacterial leaf streak, um, which usually is more of a problem, you know, Nebraska way than Iowa way. But so there are there's a lot of things going on in the top of the canopy. Well, it has, to be, it has to be an interesting year for you then, Allison. You got some tar spot that's supposed to be a little further east. You got some uh, bacterial leaf streak supposed to be a little further west. You got a lot to look at. Yes, exactly. I know, and um, yes, it's fun. There's a lot to look at, but there's I would there's nothing that I would consider a really big problem, right? So there's a little bit of everything, but not an epidemic of anything. Okay, so, well, talk to us a little bit about the bacterial leaf streak thing, because we know gosses can sure take some yield, especially if it comes early. Uh, a lot of the yes. farmers that we talk to in Nebraska say, well, I've got bacterial leaf streak, but I haven't really seen it take yield away like gosses does. Is that accurate? Um, I would consider that accurate. Um, and, um, I mean, I don't do a whole lot of work on bacterial leaf streak here just because it's not a big problem. And I know that Tamara Jackson Zeems in Nebraska has been looking into that. But, yes, I mean, I would agree with farmers that for, as a pathologist, bacterial leaf streak is kind of disappointing to me because it just... <laughs> well, I like that. To, <laughs> doesn't, yeah, I know you do, but <laughs> it doesn't seem to affect yield like Goss's wilt did, right? Goss's wilt can be absolutely devastating, and yet... Bacterial leaf streak is probably just nibbling away rather than taking big bites. Okay, so talk to us about gosses. And you said it's coming in a little. Is it coming in late, or are we just kind of first noticing it now and it's been there for a while? No, I mean I think that I mean we were pretty dry in August, um, and so bacterial diseases. You know, we need to have a lot of moisture. Some heavy storms coming through the area to facilitate infection. So I suspect that that's why maybe we didn't. You know, it's coming in a little bit later. Um, and then um, here in Iowa, we tend to see it um, in more northern Iowa in those, um, you know, 105, 103-day kind of hybrids. Um, and I think that those hybrids just tend to have a little bit more inherent susceptibility than the, than the longer season hybrids. And so that's why we picked them up there. Um, how about one more disease, Allison? How about Holcus leaf spot? We've had more guys this year talk about Holcus. Is, is that a big deal? Is it something you always see and people are just noticing it this year for some reason? I would say it's a plant pathologist curiosity. So, yes, we see it from time to time. We probably saw a little bit more this year, but really it's, you know, it's only a couple of spots on a leaf, you know, maybe half a dozen at most, but, I mean, it's, it's yeah, I 
I kind of like to put it in my quizzes that I do for disease <laughs> identification. Oh, here I we go. Know. For all the Iowa State yeah. students, we got a little sneak peek here at what, what happens yeah. on quizzes. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, other than that, it's it's I don't consider it very important. So, um, And I don't think any of my colleagues would consider it important either. It's just it's kind of cool to see if you're a pathologist. Now, so, with bacterial yeah. diseases, we don't really have widespread treatments that we're getting great results yeah, no. time after time. Have you seen anything? No. I'm, I'm sure you've probably looked at all of it. Yeah, I mean, I've tested a number of things, but um, haven't really seen anything effective. And that's, um, you know, I mean, really the only things that are going to help us would probably be an antibiotic, and we can't be spraying antibiotics over millions of acres of corn. So, um, you know, that's kind of out. But, um, yeah, I mean, really, when it comes to bacterial diseases, we're really limited to growing a hybrid that has some resistance. And so there's a lot of choices out there for Goss's wolves, but it's a little bit harder when it comes to bacterial leaf streak. Sure. So, sure. yeah, yeah. But I, I know I've never come across anything that you can apply and and see a decrease in disease. So, yeah. You know, I know I know we're starting to see hybrid ratings coming out. Just a few on some of the newer hybrids for Pfizoderma. I know you've been really heavily involved yes. in that work, too. What can you tell us about yeah. that one? Because there's more growers uh, sending us pictures that, to me, look like Pfizoderma. I guess I, I'm not a, a lab to test it or anything, but are you seeing more Pfizoderma? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This year, like, Pfizoderma has been, like, terrible. I've never seen so much Pfizoderma in my life. Um, so, and... Um, I think it has a lot to do with the very wet conditions we had May, June, and into July, um, when those corn plants are, you know, when we still have that nice world. So when those corn plants are lot young, V3 to V8, that's when infections occurring. The other thing that we know is that that physoderma can survive very well in the soil as sporangia, which are kind of like its um, resting structures, a little like sclerotia, and um, they will survive in the soil for five to seven years and so I think that we're building up inoculum and the other thing that I think is I think a lot of the hybrids that we're growing now are very susceptible to this disease and we're picking it up because we're increasing inoculum so um, yeah I'm I'm I, I've been so in some fields where almost every plant has physoderma it's kind of frightening yeah. So for farmers, the best thing they can do at this point is just schedule those to harvest as soon as possible. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, if you have a field with a disease, you should always go in and just do that push test, check your standability, and then try and get in there, you know, a little bit. I mean, it's up to you, right? You have to decide, do you want to get in there a little bit earlier and pay a little bit of drying costs? Or do you want to get in there later, maybe maybe be harvesting pickup sticks and having to drive a little bit slower through that field? I mean, both of them are going to cost you, right? So, um, but yeah, yeah. Well, something to, to be on the lookout for. I'm, I'm glad to hear uh, not seeing a big yield issue so far with the bacterial leaf streak and the gosses. Hopefully that's late enough. I know for our farm, the little bit of gosses we saw seem to be so late yes. that I, I don't think it's going to yeah. hurt us too bad. No, I don't think so either, but yeah, yeah. Well, we'll find out soon enough. The combines will be rolling. We're talking yes. to Allison Robertson with Iowa State, uh, extension plant pathologist. Allison, thank you once again. Really appreciate having you on. Well, thank you for having me again. I appreciate it too. Have a good weekend.
You bet, you as well. Talking about bacterial diseases in corn on our show today, also taking any agronomic question you may have, our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, AgPHD Media, Brian Hefty or Darren Hefty, or you can send things to the AgPHD mailbag. That's radio at agphd.com. We've got a pretty big pile here of questions, Brian. We'll try to get through some of those right after this. Stay tuned. When it comes to my weed control, I know a head start can go a long way. That's why I spray early, so I can keep control all season long with a Roundup Ready Extend Crop System, the system that makes the difference. This is my field. Choose the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System for control of more weeds than any other soybean system. Featuring Extendamax herbicide with vapor grip technology to manage tough-to-control weeds, including up to 14 days of soil activity, along with the field-proven performance of Roundup ready-to-extend soybeans. Now you have the right tools to extend your weed control and extend your yield with the system that makes the difference. Learn how you can put the system to work in your field when you visit RoundupReadyExtend.com. Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Performance may vary. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Check local regulations for specific requirements in your state. Increase your productivity with Hypro's Dual React Control System. The dual nozzle body design allows you to drive at the speed you want while maintaining the rate and droplet size you need. Hypro, helping you spray better. The last thing you want after harvesting your grain is to spoil it before it goes to market. The Grain Temp Guard from Farm Shop MFG is a low-cost bin monitoring solution that tracks temperature and humidity and alerts you when conditions exceed safe thresholds. Visit farmshopmfg.com. Every farmer knows there are lots of steps to having a perfect season. Don't let your fertilizer plan be the step that trips you up. For over 35 years, AgroLiquid has had the experts and the products that'll help you move closer to your target. No matter when you apply fertilizer, no matter how, you'll hit the bullseye. AgroLiquid can help you increase yields and crop quality. To learn more, go to agroliquid.com. AgroLiquid moves you closer to your target. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. As your corn crop grows and the ear begins to form, potassium is at a high demand, almost as high as nitrogen. The same is true for soybeans with similar high demands of potassium during pod fill. Don't fall behind and ensure your crop is getting its potassium with Catalyst. Catalyst by Actigrow has been shown to be the best at entering the leaf when compared to other leading potassium products. Visit k-supercharged.com for more information.
Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. Uh, we are in the Ag PhD mailbag time right now, and I got an email from Terry, and I thought it was interesting, Brian, because we've got not only soil tests, but we've got an estimation of what it's going to cost to tile this ground, too, which I thought was interesting. He said, I've got 300 acres of very flat ground that is sodic, and I was wondering if, in your opinion, it would be worth the expense of tiling and if it's even possible to improve this ground. I've got access to gypsum at a price of about $40 a ton. I've attached the soil samples that were done here. Most of our ground has a pH of 8 to 8.3. We're growing cereals, lentils, and canola. Would it be worth applying this cheap source of gypsum? Thanks, Terry. Really appreciate the question. Okay, so I had a lot of stuff to look over here that you handed me. So what exactly. was your what was your first point, Darren? You were well, talking about how you thought the pH should be even higher well, was, based on how thinking, much sodium there was. Yeah, I was thinking the pH might even be a little bit higher, but yeah, because this is nineteen percent sodium. Honestly, I don't see how anything grows in nineteen percent sodium. I hate to say it, but when we just have one test now, oh, and maybe I have more. I don't know what all you handed me here. Okay, so I have one test. Uh, maybe I have two. But for how, how big is this field, did he say? 300 you know? acres. Yeah, okay. So I got one test for 300 acres. I can promise you the entire field is not 19% sodium. Otherwise, we'd be looking at completely dead ground across the whole thing. I'm going to assume this might be one of the worst spots. But, yeah, it's just it's, it, it's bad. And he, let me just explain a few things. Okay, so first of all, pH is horrible. The pH is in the 8s. And we do have zero to six inch test. We also have a zero, or sorry, a six to twenty four inch test. And I love seeing that. But the problem is I don't have all the data on everything else. All I have on the deep is nitrogen, sulfur, and chloride. I oh, and I got pH. So it'd be nice to have more of the information down below. Like for example, how heavy is the ground down below? How bad's the sodium down below? All that kind of stuff. But let's put it this way. We're, we're talking 40 cation exchange capacity, so it's ridiculously heavy. 53% magnesium, so it's ridiculously tight. 19% sodium, at least in this sample, which means the soil's dead. So there needs to be a lot of work. Now, could you um, sell this ground and go buy some other ground that is in better shape to start with and then tile that ground and have everything pay off faster, that's that's really a possibility. Now, I realize as farmers, we get very, very, very attached to land, and we say, well, I'm not going to sell my ground. I'm not suggesting you go sell all your ground and you're out of farming. I'm saying we sometimes, it's just like for us farming some river bottom ground. Should we, for what that ground brings, maybe just sell that ground and then go buy some other ground that's not on the river bottom that we don't have to worry about flooding and we could make more money at that? Is that a possibility? You know, we get you got to stop and think about some of these things that we do. So let's put it this way. If you say, look, I'm keeping this ground and I just want to tile it. Will it work? I would say absolutely it's going to work. But just understand when you've got 53% magnesium, that ground's going to continue to tighten up. And so it's very possible water won't even get down to your tile line if you don't keep addressing your magnesium issue and your very, very, very low calcium issue. You need more gypsum out there. You need more calcium out there. There are some other things you need too, but I'm just trying to say it's going to take tile and then it's going to take working that ground. Uh, I don't mean working by tillage. I mean uh, addressing that ground with all its issues over the next 20 years, 
But over the next 20 years, could you take it from right now where it's terrible to 20 years from now, it could be great? Absolutely, you could. It's just going to require some investment. And yeah, I mean, tiles, when you got to put all kinds of tile out there every, you know, whatever, 20, 30, 40 feet, it does get kind of expensive. Uh, oh, yeah, he's got 30-foot spacings on on this and a lot of money. But if it's me, would I, would I do it? Sure, I would. I'll also throw this out. Rather than spending half a million dollars on the whole thing, how about this? If you're skeptical on it, take 10% of it. Take 25% of it. Just do a portion of it and see for yourself. Hey, does this pay? Now, for me, we've been doing that for years and years, so I'm confident in stuff. I don't mind it, and we can afford to do some of these things because we farm for a long time. If I'm a newer farmer, I don't have a lot of money behind me yet. You know, whatever, I'm 30 years old, I'm just really getting rolling, and this is a good chunk of the ground I farm. Okay, well, you're in a different spot. You, you see where I'm going with this. If you, if I can afford to do it, there's no question about it. I'm doing it, and it's going to pay off. Um, I don't know how quick it's going to pay off, but I just know it's going to pay off. It's a good thing. Tile works. All right, Terry, thanks for the question. We really appreciate that. Uh, got uh, a question from Matt, and he said, uh, this is a Northeast Colorado dryland corn question. Okay, lots of things there. So Northeast Colorado and dryland corn, that means dry. And uh, sure enough, Matt says, hey, we get nine inches less precip annually than you on a normal year. I said, I've been pulling some ears. This year, my- it's like 29 inches less, but <laughs> yeah. anyway, go ahead. Okay. So he said, I've been pulling some ears. I'm just handing Brian pictures of the ears. Uh, he said, we're uh, just short of black layer. One thing I've noticed is missing kernels on the butt side of the ear, the bottom side of the ear. It's not consistent. It's not everywhere, but something I've been noticing. Wondering, is this a pollination issue or yep. are they being aborted? He said, it's a low population, 12,500 population, high ear flex kind of situation. And uh, I've added nitrogen and phosphorus for about 85 bushel corn. Uh, so it's not a super high yield thing, but just wondering what's going on out here. You know, a couple things, and, and I know Brian's looking at the soil test too, and he'll probably give you some ideas of things you can do to improve your yields. Uh, but here you go, Matt. Normally when we see kernel abortion, uh, have we had a bunch of hot nights during silking? So at R1, is the nighttime temperature 70 to 75 or even 80 degrees? If so, that can lead to kernel abortion. You hear One, a lot of guys in the south talking about irrigating at yes, night just out of say. wells with 50-degree water to try to cool yep. things down. That's yes. how they're trying to get around in dryland Colorado. You're just kind of hoping that doesn't happen, and it's pretty unusual for you. Yeah, that would be unusual the, for that area with but the elevation. here's something that is common for you, drought. If you've got drought just at that wrong time of the year during reproduction, reproduction uh, and during pollination and as those kernels get started, that's an easy time for kernel abortion to happen. Here's another one you may not have thought of, cloudy days. Maybe you say, no, I haven't had drought. we got plenty of rain. If you get lots of cloudy days in R1 to R2, you're going to have limited photosynthate supply going into those kernels. And we do see abortion when we get super cloudy days. We get more tip back, those kinds of things. And the last one that oh, I know wait, Brian's going to catch yeah, on. That, you're, you're not having cloudy days in uh, northeast Colorado, so we know that's out. Okay. But anyway, go well, ahead. And, and here's the other thing is it could be, you know, if there's haze from fires true. and those that's kinds true. of things. That's true. That's true. 
which we had some of that this year. Okay, and then the last one I know Brian's going to talk about is shortage of micronutrients. Yep. When you're way short of micros, and I noticed your boron levels were super low, but yep. but there's some other things there. Those micronutrients are so important for a lot of the functions that are happening inside your plant. We really need to work on that. So it looks like you're looking at the big picture of, of nitrogen and phosphorus, for example, but I would spend a little bit of money. It doesn't have to be a lot. Maybe it's five or ten bucks an acre at least here on micros to try to get things going. Yeah, the thing when I look at is soil tests, and I've got, let's see, 16 soil tests here. I see a tremendous amount of variance. I've got some areas where I go, wow, most of the fer fertility is pretty good. pH is right. I got really high potassium levels. I got high phosphorus levels. I'm feeling pretty good overall. But then we got other spots where the pH is way off. I've got low as low as one part per million phosphorus, uh, you know, some things like that. So just if you can try evening some of those things up just in the bad spots, put the, spend your fertility dollars there, that'd be good. Now, when we talk about across everything, yeah, your boron's way, 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 way too low. I like to see three parts per million of boron. You're at a half part per million of boron. And boron is a key for that overall pollination. Just flowering in any crop, boron is important. And you don't have enough. So that's number one. So that's the first thing that I saw that stood out to me. And I go, oh, that's probably why he's got a problem with pollination or part of the reason. Now, beyond that, yes, you need more copper. And yes, you need more manganese. But for the most part, you know, there are a lot of these things that are pretty good. Um, oh, yeah, sulfur is another one you need. So it looks to me like you've been doing a pretty good job with nitrogen, pretty decent job with phosphorus just about everywhere. Potassium looks pretty good just about everywhere. It's time to start focusing on sulfur and some of the micronutrients. All right, thanks for the question. We really appreciate that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of your questions after this. How do you know when to run your grain bin fans? There's an app for that. With the Steps GMS app, you can manually turn your fans on and off from your smartphone. You can also configure the Steps GMS app to automatically turn fans on when the humidity or temperature is ideal to keep your grain in top quality condition. Save yourself some time and take the guesswork out of managing your stored grain with the Steps GMS app. Contact us at stepsgms.com for more information. Using NSERV Nitrogen Stabilizer with Fall Fertilizer Applications keeps nitrogen available into the spring for maximum crop growth. Field trials in Iowa show NSERV delivered an average revenue increase of $22.96 per acre, and NSERV is the only recognized nitrogen stabilizer product in the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy because it reduces nitrate leaching. That's max profit in an environmentally sustainable way. Calculate your field's profit potential at nitrogenmaximizers.com. If your fertilizers aren't formulated to maximize your efficiency, if you can't mix all the PK and micros your crop needs into one prescription application, if you have to add products to improve and invigorate your soil biology, then you need to expect more from your fertilizer. With AgroLiquid's advanced technology, you can expect more, a lot more. Make the most of your crop nutrition. With AgroLiquid, to find a crop nutrition expert near you, visit agroliquid.com. Every farmer knows that in order to be profitable, you need to maximize the return on your crop input investments. Hi, I'm Scott Harms, an agri specialist with Grain PhD. Without an effective and flexible strategy, your grain marketing plan gets stuck in the mud. With Grain PhD, you get the clarity and guidance a solid marketing plan needs. 
Our free GrainBridge software simplifies your cost-profit analysis, and our risk specialists are here to help you develop your plan. Sign up today at GrainPhD.com. Customer service goes a long way when trying something new. Ryan Shaw from Michigan shares how Soil Warrior helped him transition to strip tillage in his operation. The Soil Warrior guys, they are amazing to work with. They made this jump in this transition extremely painless. One question that I get all the time is, how is the service and everything? And I said, well, actually, I get better service from them than I typically do my dealers uptown. They're just amazing. More info at SoilWarrior.com. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton Studio today. Right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag, taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Got Chris with us down in Louisiana. Uh, Chris, how's it going today? Hey, how y'all doing? Good, good. What can we do for you? Um, a while ago, y'all were talking about high magnesiums in soil. We we typically fight that here in central Louisiana um, in some, some clay soils. Uh, we don't have a source for gypsum. I know you were talking about gypsum a while ago to address those issues. Other than gypsum, um, I know we get told a lot about running some uh, humic acids to help break down this magnesium. What is your thoughts on that? And that was my question. Yeah, Chris, unfortunately, it's not going to make an enormous difference for you for the long term. Can it help a little bit in the short term using some humic? Yes, it can. But a lot of times what we discuss here on Ag PhD is looking at two things, looking at either what's the short term fix or what I prefer since, you know, we're thinking about the long term is how do we permanently fix the situation? So if we can figure out some way to raise calcium and maybe even shrink the amount of parts per million of magnesium that are out there over time, that's a good thing. Now, when you say you've got high magnesium, do you know how high you're talking about? Do you know what the percent base saturation magnesium is by chance? I, I can tell you in soil samples, I, I get some, some 14 to 17, even over 2,000 parts in there. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so a lot of parts per million, but what I'm after is the ratio. I'm after what's the percentage. Because just because the parts per million looks high, that doesn't necessarily mean we are high. In other words, if we've got calcium levels that are super high, then you kind of need your magnesium up there too. When you get lighter soil, sandier soils, we actually like the magnesium percentage close to 20%. So you can have a, uh, quite a bit of magnesium out there. But anyway, if you if you get a chance and, and you have some soil tests that would have the base saturation figures on there, uh, we'd love to see them, just send them on to us. But yeah, uh, can, humic, can humic help you? Sure it can. And so that, that, that would be something decent to talk about. Yeah, but the other big thing, I, I would say we just had Neil Kinsey on the show a couple of days ago, and we were talking about this exact thing. 
And he brought up something we talk often about too. Let's not forget about all the rest of the stuff that we should be fixing in the soil. So in other words, if you've got deficiencies on anything, let's make sure we're addressing that first. So if we get all those taken care of, the soil will start to balance itself out at least a little bit more uh, and and kind of go from there. Go ahead, Darren. What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say the big thing when I've got excess magnesium is I just want to get more calcium out there. What, however I do that, if I don't have gypsum clothes, I'm going to use some lime source or something just to try to, because uh, like Brian was talking about a percentage of magnesium, we're, we're looking at these cations and uh, the big ones that, that we're concerned about would be calcium and magnesium, but also uh, sodium, hydrogen, uh, those those nutrients are really important too. So if we can build more calcium up on the base saturation test that Brian was talking about, we we lower the percentage of magnesium by increasing the percentage of the others. Now, for all of our listeners out there, and if you just heard Darren say, okay, if you don't have gypsum, throw lime out there. Well, that's nice to say, but if we get the pH too high for whatever crop you're raising, well, now you got to try to lower it with elemental sulfur. So you're right back to calcium and sulfur, which is exactly what gypsum is. But yeah, to your point, Chris, if you don't have gypsum available, number one, I might start looking around for some and see if by chance you can find some somewhere because sometimes you can get them out of some of these power plants. I mean, there are different sources. So I, I, I'd keep asking around, but yeah, then start using your humic acid a little bit and certainly make sure you're looking at all the other nutrients that you need to raise the best crop you possibly can. Well, we, we that, that's you know we 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 into the variable rate stuff and and we yep. we've kind of balanced everything out and that's our one key factor that we're playing with and we're we're already on pHs that are six to six three six five so, oh, the, so the perfect. line portion is is yeah it's kind of out 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 of the question for me yep um, that 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 uh, the closest source of gypsum and I think we can't find any the closest source for me that I've I've dug into and found is about 120 miles away sure. So that that's we kind of, we're kind of in a trying to figure out what to do from here on out. Yep. Now, one other thing. We do all kinds of experiments, and you hear us, if you listen to the show very often, you hear us talk about this all the time, is if it's me and I'm in your situation and I've never done this before, I might just buy a semi-load of gypsum, put it on the appropriate number of acres that I think, you know, okay, this is the right thing to do, this is the number of pounds I need, whatever, and this might get my ratios a lot closer, and then just test that out over the next couple, three years and see, okay, did that pay or did it not? Because very often for all of us as farmers, we're just thinking about cost, cost, cost. And that's great. I'm glad we're focused on cost. But the flip side is we got to look at, okay, what really makes money? I don't mind spending a lot of money if it if it makes me that much more. So it's probably worth trying at least on a few acres, some gypsum, and then, yeah, start experimenting with your humic acid. And, you know, the other thing we talk about in some of these higher magnesium soils is adding drain tile to improve the drainage, uh, just being focused more on controlled traffic because higher magnesium usually means means higher compaction. And so we got to try to keep our compaction down. That will also help you trying to build your soil's organic matter that will help reduce compaction and, you know, give more porosity to your soil. So there are a lot of things that can be done. Uh, It's just, yeah, if we could somehow magically change that magnesium ratio today, we know that would be great, but it does cost some money and take a little time. 
with that, what, what is a typical rate as far as gypsum going out for y'all? Um, I, I mean, that's something we we don't yep. we've never messed with. I know it's a, I know that's yep. a loaded question. Well, yeah, because it could vary from tons. I mean, literally, we've had guys put six tons on to some people need two hundred pounds or three hundred pounds. So it it just depends on your soil. If I see your soil test, then I can start running some numbers and running the math and figuring out. Okay, number one. Gypsum has sulfur in there, so that's fertilizer that I need. So I'm going to look at the crop I'm going to raise and how much sulfur does that crop need. So that's step one. Step two is how much more would I need to start really changing that calcium-magnesium ratio? And then I start asking myself, okay, do I think that's going to pay and how much would I do? So, you know, very common is 500 to 1,000 pounds. And, you know, up here, gypsum, well, it, it just depends. I, I mean, we've got some people that are right next to where gypsum is mined, where gypsum comes out of a plant, whatever, and they have ridiculously cheap costs. And so they don't care. They just put on whatever they need and, and they're done and it costs them almost nothing. But then, yeah, to your point, if you got to do a whole bunch of trucking, you, you got to weigh that out. But, yeah, if you want to send us your soil tests, we'd be more than happy to uh, give you a more specific recommendation. Guys, thank y'all so much for y'all time. Y'all have a great day. You bet. Yeah, you you too, too, Chris. Thanks a lot. All right, Brian, get a question. This is from South Africa, and this is from Paul. He said, uh, I'm having a big problem with yellow nutsedge using several different chemistries, and he gives me a rundown of several of them that, that he's not happy with. And he said, I'm planting seed corn, and I'm also planting dry beans. Uh, and I've uh, been trying several things that aren't working. What suggestions would you have? My soil pH is about a 6, 6, 1, and I've got a sandy clay loam soil. Yeah, so dual pre-emerge, Bassagran so post-emerge. Okay, so dual is metallochlorine. That's one that he's using, and he says that's working for four to six weeks, and then it kind of gives up. I agree with you. That's just a start, and it'll hold things back yeah, with but some you of can the use new it. stuff. You can use it twice per year. You could use it pre-emerge, and then you could use it early post you, to extend the residual. You could potentially use that again. Yep, so I'd do that. Uh, Bentazon, which is, is the active ingredient in Bassagran that Brian mentioned. You can use post-emerge, and that's safe on corn, and you could also use and that in dry beans. Uh, Halo sulfuron is one that, that has been used a lot. Uh, on active field ingredient, corn. Uh, that, that could be used uh, I don't know if that's permit. labeled in sweet corn. Uh, I, believe, I believe you can use it in a number of different crops. So permit or, would be one, and uh, sandia would be another product name, but uh, you can see what's labeled in, in South Africa. Wait, what kind of corn did he say? S- seed. Oh, per- seed corn, yeah. Seed corn, yeah. I don't know if it's labeled in seed corn or sweet corn. Permit. Okay, here's, I don't remember here's a couple other things that, that are interesting. Dimethenamide, which is the active ingredient in Outlook, it's not quite as good as what we've seen with metallochlor, but you may mix it up if you're just using metallochlor all the time. Yep, I wouldn't, uh, but go ahead. Then you could also use Eptam in the dry beans. Uh, the, the, the active ingredient would be EPTC. Uh, so you may consider that. That might be another thing that you add to the arsenal. But, yeah, there aren't a lot of products. I really do like the Bentazon post. That's pretty helpful. Uh, it could be spot sprayed as well to try to hit those patches. You yep. mentioned that it's irrigated ground. We often see yellow nutsedge where we have issues with water sitting. So maybe there's a drainage issue or a compaction Probably issue. Probably is. That's, that's stopping is. that water from moving through. So I would definitely be looking at that as yep. well. So put some tile out there, get some more calcium out there, build your soil's organic matter. Paul, thanks for watching our show. We really appreciate that and hope everything's going well for you down in South Africa. Had a fun show today talking about bacterial diseases in corn. We've certainly got a lot more to come uh, in upcoming shows here as we get into harvest season. 
Thanks for listening today, and be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.